Hello. This is the part two of the memoir, and I'll be beginning the chapter on a perspective ego. I had been practicing Buddhism for several months, and though I was getting good benefits, my anger festered within my being, utilizing any free opportunity to release its venom penetrating my nervous system, blocking the nerve signals that oversee regulation of rationality, temperance, sound judgment, and wisdom, where it became more like paralysis of the brain. Though anger serves as an evolutionary function for our earth survival, I feel it's a treacherous neurotoxin that humans have developed an immunity to. Anger wills the necessity for violence, barren of all logic, but conducive for our protection, nevertheless. As a Buddhist, I studied how to transform my anger. However, there are certain instances where anger is unavoidable and even necessary. I explained this unavoidability at the Buddhist center after giving a wonderful speech in front of an entire congregation. Afterwards, I was approached by the Kobe leader, Kaiochi, telling me that I did not pronounce the Kobe leader name correctly. I was coming down from a high of giving what I thought was a great speech in public, which was a huge milestone in overcoming my social anxiety. So I was confused to why the New York chapter leader was confronting me angrily. I apologized to him, but I, I again was pulled aside and taken into a private room where another leader had took upon himself to berate me for mispronouncing the Kobe's president's name. All I could think was, if his name didn't sound would rhyme with a, a mass terrorist, I might have pronounced the name correctly. I could feel the anger brewing up in me. And I could no longer stand there and take his scolding anymore. So I instinctually wanted to get out of there and avoid jumping on him like a lion and ripping his head off. It felt horrible being pushed into a corner with no air to breathe, suffocating me and entrapping me. An entraption of anger all over a common mistake made by most new members. I stormed out of there feeling angry, feeling hurt, disappointed and defeated. I wanted to fall, ball up and cry, to shrink in a clamshell and never come out. I had put so much effort into preparing for that speech, yet these two Asian leaders who were supposed to encourage me seemed more offended that I had the opportunity to give the speech than the message promulgated. This setback, re this setback reinforced the feeling that all humans are addicted to tearing each other down rather than encouraging and building one another up. This heartbreak lingered for days, even weeks. Because though other members have disappointed me, never did the knife cut as deep that it did this time. This feeling of discouragement showed me how fragile I was to criticism, how much I cared about what people thought rather than what, how about my own merits. The expectations of failure has blocked a lot of my progress in life, and this energy had nowhere to escape. It had taken me nearly three hours to write the speech, and I was looking forward to sharing my experience in hopes that I would impact someone's life. I tried to tell myself what people have been telling me all along, to just let it go. But as I thought about Audrey Lord and how she became to believe, in quote, what is most important must be spoken, made verbal, and shared, 
even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood, end quote. I became upset thinking about how unfair it was that my speech was cropped out and replaced with another speech ten minutes before I went up to the podium. Then I nearly had my head ripped off for mispronouncing the leader's name. I called a few of the leaders in my district and verbally blasted their organization for trying to sabotage my speech. I complained how corrupt and phony the members were. My mood went from concern to pissed in a matter of minutes, and there was nothing that could stop me. I was loud, screaming into the phone, but I did not care. I took that moment of rage to berate the entire organization, and I called foul play over how things were run in the organization. I told them that it was a waste of my time to come down and volunteer for five and six hours each week and not feeling gratified or appreciated for doing so. I harnessed every bit of anger deep within the hollow crevices of my being, knowing damn well what the problem stemmed from. It stemmed from the same heterosexual heterosexist culture that spews its venomous poisonous venom on me every time I walk out of my apartment pervasively saturated all the available free space in the atmosphere distorting my senses causing so much self-doubt frustration and sometimes making me fearful evil does not care how I feel after it has committed its act of hate after it robs me of my joy it then sits back anticipating my fall when I do fall on my head, it mocks and laughs at my pain as if I deserved it. No one deserves to feel this kind of pain, but pain is ubiquitous. Paradoxically, pain also feels heals because how else could I know the feeling of overcoming it if I never experienced it? If I have the inclination to bear and endure it, it transcends the spirit to higher dimensions of consciousness. Pain needs to exist so I may use reasoning by exercising free will, which is God-given. Maybe my only mission in life is to correct past karmic actions or the antecedents of influences committed on the planet, on this planet. This becomes a universal act, working on a single universal consciousness leading toward balance, where I am on the path of healing Negative forces inevitably creeps in as a distraction. This distraction can either carry me into a state of delusion and misguidedness or serve as a lesson to remind me it still exists so I know how to recognize it and stay away from it the next time, whereby cultivating wisdom. I vowed to move on from this unfortunate experience, but the pain lingered and it hurt. My heart bleeds when I feel let down by the members of the Kobe, and I now knew that the rejection felt like. The paradox was that I was never obligated to any of the people that hurt me, yet life seems to have been engaged, have me engaged with the bride of Chucky. I admit, I could be a bit intense at times, ran my heart on my sleeve, and when I trust people, I am devastated when they hurt me. However, I know the hurt needs to be there to force me to grow and change. Through my prayers, I was back to square one. This time I needed to accept this obstacle as an opportunity to build a stronger relationship with myself, using pain to begin treating myself with generosity and compassion. To love me, to not be afraid to jump back into the deep waters in order to break my karma, but this life feels as though it is pushing me against a glass ceiling. I can see the sky, but I cannot touch it. 
due to the invisible ceiling. My ceilings, that's with an S. My socioeconomic level, class, status, and lack of privilege. Those systems that seek to fragment reality by using my race, ethnicity, cultural heritage, nationality, spirituality, and anything else that it can be used to keep me down. The gnawing question is, if pain is a concept free from the trappings of space and time, why does it choose to strike when it does? And how does it choose who it wants to attack? Aren't we all unique entities utilizing the source for our own purpose in life? Or are we one interconnected entity and pain can never be truly be explained from a universal context as it happens to us universally? I'm sorry, as it happened to us individually. It does not take a rocket scientist to realize that pain affects poor people more detrimentally than those groups that use their resources to offset the unpredictability of encroaching pain. There must be something about lacking something in life that instructs the ethereal energies of pain to attack the human organism. Thus, privilege is a remedy for pain. After coming out of my funk, I began immersing myself in Kobe activities, volunteering at the Buddhist center. By humbling myself, I was determined to heal myself from my hurt feelings. I started chanting for two hours a day for one month. After my campaign, I had a valuable valuable self-affirming epiphany. I was powerless to my destructive drinking and unsafe sex practices, creating interactions with people that affirms my feelings of isolation, loneliness, and frustration, manifesting itself in my everyday interactions with outsiders. I adopted this defense stance against anything wishing to threaten my peace. I then realized I was basing my idea of peace in lieu of the absence of problems, and this was a detrimentally foolish way of living. I realized the true happiest people on earth experience the worst and the hardest times in their life. I began to see my problems differently and adjusted the optics in which I viewed reality. Once I embraced this realization, I look forward to life bringing challenges because each challenge makes me analyze the method and how I solve that problem. I cannot have autonomy without pain. They are one and the same. I was the sum quantity of my experiences combined with other self-concepts. I was beginning to see my autonomy and uh, illusion, the real and the same at the same in the illusion at the same time my illusions drive life forward but ultimately coming back to the source existing in the celestial universe once i started seeking self-affirming and empowering aspects of life that in which define more clearly my purpose i had to take inventory of the people places and things that did not improve my mental physical and spiritual well-being i started intentionally monitoring my behavior, actions, and perceptions in my environment. I constantly monitored my thoughts and actions that were undesirable. By, by monitoring myself for the duration of time, eventually I will be able to eradicate this annoying ego complex. I observed how differently I pr- processed emotions than other people. 
What provokes me to react extemporaneously and hasty when the next person may deal with life unpredictabilities in a calm and deliberate way? What determined my proneness towards certain behavioral patterns? I mean, I knew I had a proneness to visit the bars and drink myself to an oblivion. I knew that I was prone to pick up a stranger and engage in a little extracurricular sex. I knew I had a proneness to look down on those I considered inferior to me, to make myself feel good. All these traits were inside of me, but were they biologically fixed or could they be eradicated? Buddhist philosophy believes heaven and hell exist on earth in the material plane of our reality. It also teaches that there are pre-assigned dimensions or energy levels that humans navigate between all the time that is known as the ten worlds. Furthermore, the universe and its components are subject to the Sicilic law of birth, death, and rebirth. Therefore, an absolute beginning is inconceivable. Buddhism teaches ultimately God is life and heaven and hell are all are not separate, but inseparable entities existing on earth, along with other sentient metaphysical intelligences that communicate to us every day. I wanted to be able to understand this world system so I would not be destroyed by one of the systems interplaying in the terrestrial spheres of life. If there is indeed duality between good and evil and they exist to be encompassed all the same, why is the process of eradicating negative functions a part of Buddhist practice? Why is there an earnest effort to get to rid the planet of this negative celestial energy in pursuit of happiness and world peace when we know world peace is only wishful thinking? Buddhist teaching explains guilt and shame comes from other belief systems only concerning itself with how we live this life in the present, working toward the future. According to Buddhist thinking, time has no beginning. Time, space, paradigms are human constructs created by motion in space. What is motion in space? What one person does is not good or evil. It is either a cause that will create value for them or anti-value. Therefore, guilt and shame are used to control people. The law of cause and effect governs people and their actions towards others. The human construct reality based on constructual methods of perceiving things, then we find ways to settle the mind's need to understand it by forming decisive conclusions about the perceived stimulus. Then, what is the conclusion of hate? If hate is a form, does it have structure? What is it ordering it? Where am I getting my instructions to hate? Or how am I cognitively perceiving the expression of hate? We know the expression of love. We exert love by feeling compelled to impart it. Maybe the form of hate is not inherently bad. Yet we apply meaning of bad to hate, which influences preconditioned repulsive behavior as a rebuke against it. In considering all of this, I made a determination to just be happy, to love and just not hate. To forgive my parents and just move on with my life. To be compassionate of others and who are suffering from the program of hate. And that's the end of that chapter. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Goodbye.